Our gospel lesson and our sermon text is from the end of John chapter 1. Listen carefully to the gospel of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him, Simon, to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at Simon, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Or Peter. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, most, ass- most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to see you today, to see your son, Jesus, for who he is. Help us by your spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Our sermon text for this Lord's Day is what I just read. John 1, 35 to 51. Today we come to the end of the first chapter of John's gospel, which means we come to the end of John's introduction. From here on out, we get into 
the narrative, the ministry of Jesus, his mighty deeds and teachings. And to understand what's going on in these verses, we need to see how John ties this passage together with a common theme. And that theme has to do with seeing. Did you catch that as we were reading it? I'll highlight the words see, saw, and seek, and found, and behold, and look as I read through the passage again. So as we read it, I want you to notice what John is doing here, tying it together with this theme. So you can follow along or listen, but I want to read it again and maybe see if you can see this passage with new eyes. You didn't catch it the first time. Again, the next day, Jesus stood with his uh, stood with two of his disciples. Verse 36, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, or look, see the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? Verse 39, he said to them, come and see. Next sentence, they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at Peter, he said, you are Simon, son of Jonah. You should be called Cephas. Verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, look, see an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, you are the son of God, king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? Verse 51, he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Now, until now, you probably you may have never noticed how many times the passage uses words like see, seeing words and looking words, seeking and finding words. But now you can't help but notice it, right? These words jump out at you at this point. So you see this passage with new eyes, fresh eyes. Hopefully you'll never read the passage the same way again because you've been reoriented toward this section of scripture and something similar has happened to those who have found Jesus, who have seen Jesus. 
When you have found Jesus, when Jesus has found you, you can see Jesus with new eyes. You've been reoriented toward Jesus. That's what's going on with these first disciples of Jesus. When unbelievers look at Jesus, they see a mere man. They may see an inspiring man, but they do not see God. When believers look at Jesus, they see him for who he is. They see the Lamb of God. They see the Son of God, the Son of Man, the God-Man, the eternal Word made flesh. They see Jesus with new eyes. They've had their eyes opened. Everyone who reads this passage is challenged to ask himself or herself the most basic life questions. Who am I seeking? What am I seeking? Am I seeking Jesus, the real Jesus? Or am I seeking a Messiah made in my own image? Do I see Jesus for who he is as he's revealed in Scripture? Or is my Jesus one that is of my own making in my own image? Am I following Jesus? Have I found Jesus as he found me? We'll revisit these questions as we walk through the text together. In verses 35 to 42, the first major section, Jesus finds and is found by three disciples, Andrew, and then an unnamed disciple, the anonymous disciple of, is almost surely John, the author of the, the gospel. He never names himself throughout the gospel. Probably him. Can't know for sure. And then third is Peter. Simon Peter, Andrew's brother. In verses 35, 36, and 37, the gospel shifts dramatically from the public ministry of John the Baptist to the public ministry of Jesus. John fades into the background completely in this text because Jesus is the goal of John's ministry. That's the first point. Subpoint in your outline. Jesus is the goal of John's ministry. John's ministry is not an end in itself. John is pointing people away from John to Jesus. In verse 35, John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples. In verse 36, John looks directly, intently at Jesus is the word there. It's, it's a staring right at him kind of a thing. As he's walking by and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And the first time John says this is back in verse 29. And that time Jesus was walking toward John when John says this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But this time in verse 36, instead of walking toward John, Jesus is just walking by John. As John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And this marks the shift that is taking place. The focus is no longer on John the Baptist at all. Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's acting on his own. John the Baptist is disappearing, not to be mentioned again in this scene. His final words in this passage are spoken right there in verse 36. And so it's official. The cleansing ministry of John the Baptist has given way, has been replaced by the cleansing ministry of the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sins. 
This is confirmed in verse 37 when John says, The Lamb of God, two of his disciples leave him and go to the Lamb, to Jesus, to follow him. This is exactly how John wants it because Jesus is the goal of John's ministry. And one of the ways in which Jesus is greater than John, one of the ways in which Jesus is preferred to John is that Jesus can actually take away sin. Number two, Jesus is the sin-removing Lamb of God. He's the sin-removing Lamb of God. That's why these two, two disciples leave John to follow Jesus. Jesus washes with water. Excuse me, John washes with water. Jesus will wash with the water and the Spirit. John washes with water, but Jesus will wash his people with the blood of the eternal Lamb of God. To call Jesus the Lamb of God meant that God had finally sent the sacrifice for sin that would end all sacrifices for sin. It had come. He had come. Jesus came to die in our place just as the animal sacrifices died in the place of the people in the Old Covenant. When the two disciples heard John say this, and they heard him proclaim that Jesus is the the sin-removing Lamb of God, verse 37 says they followed Jesus. They wanted to follow the one who could deal adequately with their sin. To be a follower of Jesus you must realize that you are in desperate need of a Savior because of your sin. We are needy sinners in need of a Savior. You see, following Jesus is not heroic. We don't follow Jesus the way David's mighty men followed David, King David. David's mighty men protected David, they were his bodyguards, they got him water, fought for him. They were heroic. They were mighty men. We don't follow Jesus as mighty men. We follow Jesus as needy, wayward sheep. We don't fight for him. He fights for us. We don't protect him. He protects us. We don't. He he doesn't need us. We need him. We don't feed him, he feeds us. We don't bring him water, he gives us living water. We don't provide a table for him, he provides a table for us in the presence of our enemies. We come to Jesus with nothing. We have nothing to offer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's how we come to Jesus initially. We come to Jesus in need of a Savior, in need of a sacrifice. We need somebody who is perfect because we are imperfect, sinful. We need somebody who is strong because we are weak. We need somebody who is wise because we are foolish. We need somebody who is holy because we have defiled ourselves. We come to Jesus because we are sinful and because he is the sin-removing lamb 
of God. That's right at the foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To come to him as needy sheep in need of a savior. Number three, Jesus turns toward his people. Jesus turns toward his people. And they turn toward him. Verse 38 says, then Jesus turned. This is the very first recorded action in John's gospel for Jesus. The first action of the word in the world. And it's significant. Jesus turned to those who followed him. This verb turned, it's not just telling us that Jesus turned physically, he did. It's also telling us that God is turning or returning to his people. The Old Testament has prayers asking God to turn back toward his people. For example, Psalm 90, verse 13. The psalmist cries out to God, turn, O Lord, how long? Lord, when are you going to turn? How long are we going to wait? We have to wait before you're going to turn. Show us your favor. Return to us with your grace. The verb turn was the normal word for the return of God to Israel and for the return of Israel to God. Zechariah 1.3 and Malachi 3.7. God declares to Israel, Return to me, and I will return to you. Turn to me, and I will turn toward you. When we turn back to God, God turns to us. The moment these two Israelites turned away from John, and started following Jesus, Jesus turned toward them. He turned toward his people. The turning of Jesus here is the answer to the long-standing prayers of God's people throughout the Old Covenant. God has finally come. He's finally turned toward His people in the person of Jesus Christ. This is good news. The church proclaims a God who has returned and who will return. During Christmas, we celebrate the first coming of Christ. During Easter, we celebrate the return of Christ From the dead. During Advent, we look forward to the final return of Jesus when he will come back to earth and raise us up from the dead. We will return from the dead. Every Lord's Day, the Lord lifts up his countenance upon us. He turns his face toward us, is what that says there, what it means. And he gives us his peace. Jesus turns toward us. His people again and again and again. Number four, Jesus calls John's disciples to come and see. Come and see. That's what verses 38 and 39 say. Jesus asks in verse 38, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? He asked this because many people were following him for wrong reasons, wrong motivations. There was not true faith there. Remember what Jesus told the crowd in John chapter 6, verse 26. You seek me not because you saw the signs, 
but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. So Jesus is asking the two disciples here, why are you seeking me? What do you want? What are you looking for in the Messiah? What about us? What about you? What are you looking for in Jesus? What are you seeking? What are you expecting from him? Do you follow him only because he fills your belly with food? Would you stay with him? Would you remain in him? He took away your comforts and your conveniences. What do you seek? The disciples answer Jesus in verse 38. Seems like they might be dodging the question. They ask, they answer the question with a question. Where are you staying? But they're not avoiding the question. They're telling Jesus exactly what they're looking for. They're looking for someone to follow, which which means they're looking for someone to be with, to remain with, to stay with. Jesus says in John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me for where I am, there will my servant be also to be a servant, a follower of Jesus. You need to be where he is. And where he wants you to be. These disciples want to know where Jesus is staying because they want to follow him and remain in him. So they ask, where are you staying? In verse 39, Jesus tells them, come and see. Now, there's a double meaning here. Kind of almost seems like they're talking past each other, you know, answer a question with a question and then just saying, you know, give it an address or something. Just come and see. There's a double meaning here. At one level, Jesus is simply saying, come and see where I'm staying. Come come see where I live. That's what they end up doing, staying with him in his house. But at another level, Jesus is saying, come and see, and you will see with new eyes. Come and see, and you will have spiritual sight. In Jesus, in Christ, you can see with new eyes. In John's gospel, coming to Jesus means entrusting yourself to Jesus. It means receiving his promises and believing in him every day, looking to him every day, clinging to his cross every day. In John's gospel, being a true follower of Jesus means staying with Jesus, remaining in Jesus. Two disciples came to Jesus and stayed with him. And Jesus gave them sight. Maybe their sight wasn't the greatest initially. They didn't know exactly who he was. But then they came and stayed with him and they saw more clearly. And then they stayed with him for three years and saw more clearly. But then they didn't really see fully until the resurrection as God continued to give them more and more sight. But... They did see, verses 40 and 41 indicate that. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and who followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Verse 41, Andrew first found his brother, his own brother Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. So he sees, he's found Jesus. When you come to Jesus, you see. When you follow Jesus, you can see. Those who come to Jesus and remain with him are those who can see Jesus and reality for what they are. 
They see the truth with the eyes of their heart. Those who come to Jesus have had the eyes of their heart enlightened. The eyes of their heart have been illumined with the light who is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, which I read earlier. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory that is seen in the face of Jesus. When God shines his light in your heart, He enables you to come and to see. He enables you to find Jesus. He enables you to remain in Jesus after you've found Jesus. Without that light, you remain in darkness. With that light, you can remain on the vine. Verses 38 and 39, the word remain or stay appears three times. Verse 38, where are you staying? Verse 39, they came and saw where he was staying. And they remained or stayed, same word, with him. Same Greek word three times in two verses. And it's the same word that is used several times in John 15. Remember that passage? Let me read John 15, 4 to 6. Remain in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine... Neither can you unless you remain in me. Stay in me. Abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever remains stays in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit for apart from me. You can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire and burned. Number five. Jesus gives Simon a new identity. Verse 42, Andrew brings his brother Simon to Jesus. Jesus looks at him intently, directly. Same verb there that's used above. And he says, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You'll be called Cephas, which means Peter or a stone. In giving Simon a new name, Jesus is asserting his absolute authority over Simon. In the Old Testament, God gives New names. Remember, he gives Jacob a new name, Israel. Jesus is acting as God acts. He doesn't ask Peter if it's okay for him to give him a new name. Are you okay with this new name? No, he's not suggesting that Peter try it on for size and see if it takes. He just says, You're Simon. You're going to be called Peter. Period. Jesus has absolute authority to choose Simon and to give Simon a new identity in him, in Christ. And this, is, this is what Jesus has done for, for all of us. It's what he's done for you. If you are in Christ, then you have received a new identity. You're no longer your old person, your old self. Your old self is gone because God has created a new you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe in him, if you have received Jesus and you're following him, remaining in him, walking with him, keeping in step with his spirit, that means God has created a new you to enable you to do that. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Your old self was enslaved to sin. Your new self is a slave of righteousness. It's supposed to be. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another. Why? Because you have put off the old self, the old man, the old person with his practices. And you have put on the new self, new man, new person, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians 3, 3. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died. You have a new life hidden with Christ in God. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus gave Simon a new identity. Jesus has given us, you, a new identity. If you're in Christ, you're a new person. A new creation. The old has passed away. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, look, the new has come. In verses 43 to 51, the second major section here, two other disciples come into view. It's all about Jesus' first disciples here. It's really all about Jesus. Now Jesus finds and is found by Philip and Nathanael. Verse 4 and 45 says that Jesus finds Philip and commands his allegiance. That's what it's about. He tells Philip, follow me. He doesn't ask Philip to follow him. No, he unilaterally commands Philip, follow me. Commands Philip's allegiance. And Jesus commands your allegiance and my allegiance as well. See, Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. He is the son of God. He is the God man. And he has the right to command your faithful allegiance to him. And he has commanded it. He has commanded your allegiance. Every single person's allegiance. He's commanded it. And if you have given your allegiance to King Jesus, you are one of those who is a follower of Christ, you must realize that this is not of your own doing. You are a follower of Christ only because Christ sought you out, found you, and enabled you to follow him. If you have found Jesus, it's because he has first found you. Jesus here finds Philip and then commands him, follow me. 1 John 4.19, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. If he hadn't loved us, we would not be able to love him. It's not in us. John 15.16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that we don't have to choose Christ, to follow Jesus, to choose, make that decision. Not just one time, but every day, ongoing way. We do have to choose Jesus, but also don't make the mistake of thinking that you chose Jesus first. No, you are only able to follow Jesus because he first chose you, loved you. John six forty four. <clears throat> no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the father who sent me draws him. <clears throat> 
in verses 45 to 50, Nathanael becomes a follower of Jesus. And long before Nathanael knows Jesus, Jesus knows Nathanael. He sees Nathanael first. And then Nathanael sees Jesus with new eyes. Now we've come to the climax of the passage. Verse 45, Philip finds his friend, Nathanael. He tells him, we found the one. We found the one that the Old Testament pointed to. His name's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's a son of Joseph. We found him. When he says we have found him, he's identifying himself with the other disciples, the community of disciples who have found Jesus. And what's Nathaniel's response? He shows this prejudice in verse 46. What good can come from Nazareth? Come on. Give me a break. You're trying to tell me that the Messiah, the one, is from Nazareth? Get out of here. Nathaniel cannot for the life of him imagine that the one, the king of Israel, this mighty guy, prestigious guy, is from, you know, the armpit of Israel. Israel wasn't on, Nazareth wasn't on the map at this point. There's no mention of Nazareth in ancient history. So we get to the New Testament. How could the one come from? From there. Not who we're looking for. It's a shock to find out that the Messiah is from Nazareth. In the same way, it's a shock to find out that God became human. Unexpectedly, God took on human flesh. Unexpectedly, the Messiah hails from Nazareth. Notice that Philip doesn't get into a debate with Nathaniel. He doesn't try to argue Nathaniel into the kingdom of God. He says, come and see. You've heard that before, right? Come and see. That's what Jesus tells the two disciples up in verse 39. Come and see. First come and then you will see. You don't make disciples by debating with them especially if the debate is online, especially if it's on Facebook. No, you make disciples by showing them who Jesus is. You make followers of Jesus by inviting them to come and see. You make followers, disciples of Jesus by inviting them to come and see Jesus in your life, in your home, in our body, in the word of God. Come and see Jesus. If you come, you'll see. The church's mission to the world is stated simply in Jesus' first statement to his interested followers. And then in Philip's statement to Nathaniel, come And you'll see. Come and see. This is the ongoing task of every follower of Jesus. Come and see is not a one-time deal. It's not a completed task. It's never a completed task. It is the constant striving of every Christian. Every day we come to Jesus. 
And we ask him to help us to see him better today than we did yesterday. Come and see is a way of life. What God is calling each of us to do. Come and see is what a person does at the beginning of his walk with Christ. But it's also what a person does as he's finishing the race. When you come to church, Jesus is inviting you to come and see. When you open his word, you're coming and you're seeing Jesus. When you come to the table in a few minutes, he is inviting you to come and taste and see that he is good. When you open the word as a couple or as a family, Jesus is inviting you to come and see with new eyes, with fresh eyes, See something you haven't seen before. Come and see is what it means to follow Jesus. It's, it's a summary, one summary, of the Christian life. It serves a, as a summary of, of what it means to be Christ-centered. We're always coming to Jesus. We're always seeing Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author, beginner, and the finisher, completer of our faith. So we come and see at the beginning, we're come, we come and see at the end, and we're coming and we're seeing all through the middle. The call of discipleship is come and see. The Lord's response to Nathaniel's prejudice comment may be a little surprising. Maybe we're expecting Jesus to rebuke Nathaniel. I heard you say that. Of course, he does hear him say that. But he says in verse 47, behold, an Israelite indeed, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So Nathaniel may be prejudiced against Nazarenes, but he's, but he's not deceitful. And Jesus can work with that. He can deal with that. He, he just puts it, off, he puts it out there what he thinks. Not a hypocrite. Right? He says one thing out of this side of his mouth and another out of this side. You get what you see. See what you get with Nathaniel. And Jesus is not saying that Nathaniel has arrived spiritually. He's simply saying that Nathaniel has the inner disposition of a true worshiper of God. You see, Jesus is echoing here Psalm 32, which we sang today. We sang from Psalm 32 says that blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is forgiven, and in whose spirit there is no, what? Deceit. That psalm is about how to come to God. You come to God not trying to hide your sin, cover your sin. You can't deceive God. You come to God acknowledging your sin. And when there is no deceit in you, you are blessed. Nathaniel's posture is the posture that Jesus wants to see in all of his followers. The, the gospel demands full admission of sin and full submission to Christ. Despite Nathaniel's prejudice, he was a seeker of God. He wasn't a perfect seeker of God, but he was a seeker of God. He knew he needed a savior and ultimately he was willing to come and see and submit to Christ. This is the posture of a true worshiper. 
It's the place where grace and mercy are received from the throne of God. He had preconceived notions, but then when he came and he saw Jesus, he buried them. He put them away, put them aside, and he confessed faith in Jesus. Because he had become a man in whom there was no deceit. He was up front. He was honest, not perfect, but honest with himself and with God. Now, I'm going to move quickly through verses 48 to 50 so we can get to 51, the real climax of the, of the passage. In verse 48, Nathaniel doesn't deny being an Israelite whom there's no deceit. He just asked Jesus, how do you know me? How do you know that about me? You see, Nathaniel is an Israelite in whom there is no false humility, which makes sense because false humility is really just a form of deceit. And Jesus responds, before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. Now, we don't know what Nathaniel is doing under the fig tree. There have been all kinds of attempts to, to figure out what the significance is, the symbolism, or what he must have been doing. I don't think we can know, and I don't think it matters because it's not the point. The point is simply that Jesus knew where Nathaniel was in body, and he knew the nature of his heart. He's just letting him know, I know both. And this evokes a confession of faith from Nathaniel in verse 49. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And then in verse 50, Jesus says, in essence, you think that's great. You haven't seen anything yet. You believe because you heard me say that I saw you under the fig tree when I wasn't there? Well, hang on because you're going to see greater things than these. And then the passage culminates in verse 51. And Jesus said to Nathanael, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's going on here? Now, Let's stop and think here. Where else in Scripture do we see heaven open and the angels of God, exactly what it says in this passage I'm thinking of, the angels of God ascending and descending between heaven and earth. Where do we see that? We see it with Jacob, right? In Genesis 28, and Jesus is borrowing that image That story, the image from that story, the reality from that story in Genesis 28. Let me just refresh your memory here. Jacob was on his way to Haran to stay with his uncle Laban. And on his way, he stopped at a certain place to stay the night there. And while he slept, God gave him a vision. There was a ladder in the vision and there were angels in the vision ascending, going up and down. Sending and descending from heaven to earth on Jacob. And, they, and it says the Lord stood above Jacob. And, and then do you remember what Jacob said when he woke up? Genesis twenty eight sixteen. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I, and I did not know it. He was there, but Jacob didn't know it. And he says... He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Okay? 
And notice that neither Genesis 28 nor John 1 tell us what these angels, why these angels are doing what they're doing. What their purpose is, we're not told. We don't know why they're going back and forth between heaven and earth. We're just told that they are. And the point is that heaven is open and God is present. That's the point in both stories. And the point of John 1.51 is that Jesus is the final and decisive connection between heaven and earth. Jesus is now the place where people meet with God. Jacob didn't know didn't know that about the place where he was. The disciples don't know that really about Jesus. They don't know that he is the house of God, the Bethel. Jacob called the place Beth El, Bethel, house of God. El means God. Beth, Bet, or Beth is Hebrew for house. Because he said, surely God is in this place, and he didn't know it. Now Jesus is Beth El. Jesus is the house of God. Jesus is where God is present. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. Now the house of God is not a place on the map, but a person. A person at the right hand of God. A person who is with us. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> if you want to remain with God, if you want to be with God, if you want to stay with God, then you need to remain with Jesus, stay with Jesus. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus. If you want to see God, come and see Jesus. See him in his word. See him in his people. See him in the gathered assembly. As we sing together, as God's glory reflects off of one another. See Jesus. Come and see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Please continue to open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see the real you, so that we can know you, so that we can stay with you, remain in you all of our days. Help us to do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name, amen.